Blog Talk Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Movie Attic Headquarters with your host, Betty Jo Tucker, author of Confessions of a Movie Attic, right here at www.blogtalkradio.com. Hi, all you movie fans out there. This is Betty Jo Tucker speaking to you on July 12, 2011, and thanking you for tuning in to Movie Attic Headquarters. We have a wonderful show for you today, folks, because we're honoring the great Katherine Hepburn, who earned four Academy Awards as Best Actress and 12 Oscar nominations during her lifetime. As part of this tribute, we're very fortunate to have an intriguing pre-recorded interview with Hepburn's niece, Katherine Houghton, the actress who played her daughter in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, one of the movies for which Hepburn won a Best Acting Oscar. In addition to Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, Katherine Houghton has acting credits in such movies as Kinsey, Ethan Frome, and The Last Airbender. She also appears in stage productions and is a successful playwright. Then, after Catherine's interview, we'll hear reactions about Catherine Hepburn's remarkable acting career from Diana Sanger, founder and editor of Classic Movie Guide, and film historian James Colt Harrison, and hopefully our co-host Jazz Shaw, uh, who may be joining us for that part of the show. But first... Let's check with Danielle Dyer, our very helpful interim producer, to see if the chat room is open for business. Danny, are all systems go in the chat room? Yes, ma'am. Well, we're happy to hear that, and we want to thank you for being such a helpful chat wrangler. You're doing a great job, and thanks to the people who have signed up to participate, as well as to our other listeners, of course. All righty then, on with the show. Last Thursday morning, James Colt Harrison and I had the good fortune to talk with Catherine Houghton. And after a few delightful get-acquainted minutes, we finally decided to get down to business, beginning with some important questions about Catherine Hepburn and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which was a landmark movie, as you'll appreciate after hearing this interview. Now, here's the way that conversation went down. And I can't get the tape. We should get on with the interview. And um, fine. I, I don't want to don't want to keep you all morning, but I'm just so glad that we that we do have you here. And I I thought that James might like to start out with the first uh, couple of uh, questions. So James, you're on. Uh, oh, I'm on. Okay. Well, let's see. He's always on, though. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I guess the obvious question would be, how did Katherine Hepburn influence your acting career? Well, you you know, James, what what I would like to 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 talk about first is guesses coming to dinner, since that is the the role that I'm best known for in in yes. the in the world. Um, very often, people say to me, you know, what what did that mean for your career? And I think that is one of your questions, actually. Um, 
And it's it's a very hard question to ask because I think an actor who appears in a film uh, that's had such popularity and notoriety over the years, you're really the last person to know um, exactly what effect it's had on you. But in answering this question uh, many, many times, I, I think that there, there are three main aspects uh, in trying to answer it. And uh, the most important one is that, for me, it was a great life experience. That, that, that's the most important thing about it, a great honor, a great life experience. And um, I think, too, that the most important thing to me as a person more than than fame and fortune is having great life experiences because I do feel right. we we come this way once and uh, to have wonderful uh, life changing experiences um, is a, a great uh, piece of good fortune. Now uh, the reason I say it was a great life experience for me um, is I was part of creating such an important uh, and worthwhile fable. I, I think of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner really as a fable. It's it's not realistic. It's a fairy tale. Yes. A, a fairy tale for the screen. And and uh, aside from all the wonderful other people in the film um, who are always a great pleasure to see, it, the story is a very important story and continues to be a very important story, alas, Uh which is that judging people for the quality of their soul is is more important than judging them for the color of their skin or some other ah. superficial quality. And right. I think we have to keep telling that story uh, again and again since we never seem to learn the lesson it teaches. But um, I think uh, as a very young person starting out um, in the business, I'd only done a few plays and a, and a few um really amateur kind of films. This was, as a person, this was a, a, a tremendously important thing to me to be part of because it was so high quality. Yeah. And it really made it very difficult for me to do uh, films that I, I didn't for some reason or another. Some perhaps would say, but why the hell did you do that film? Uh, but there was always a reason behind what I did, not not just making money. Um, but trying to do something that I felt had some importance to to its uh, content. The second thing was that it was very helpful to me as a theater actress to appear in that film because it was such a huge hit. And naturally, theater producers who are concerned about box office like to cast what they consider names in order to sell tickets. So it opened right. up lots and lots of theater opportunities for me and I was very very lucky to be able to play um, many many of the great classic roles whether it was Chekhov or Ibsen or Shakespeare or Tennessee Williams or Eugene O'Neill or whoever and I, I don't know that I would have had that opportunity in the theater without that film and uh, third and least important um, Doing that role in that film was very problematic for me as a young film actress because it was my first big movie role. 
and um, Joey Drayton, uh, as I'm sure you would agree, wasn't really a character. Uh, she was an idea. And uh, Oh, I hadn't thought of it that way. As an actress, you can't reveal uh, who you are playing an, an idea. And, and my primary job was to play the idea. It had nothing to do uh, with my personality. I certainly believed in the idea with all my heart and soul. But I couldn't really be a personality. You know, I couldn't be my personality. Yes, yes. So I think that Hollywood just didn't really know what to do with me. And um, if I'd started out playing in a more contemporary kind of film where I did play a character, a character going through a divorce or a character who was a single parent or, or issues that were issues at the time, a, a, a woman who... Uh, was fighting for some kind of career post, uh, uh, being the, the 60s and the 70s, the whole women's lib thing. You know, I could have been more of who I am as a person. But as I say, compared to the other two aspects of doing that film, that's really very unimportant. Yeah. And um, I uh, I really am have no regrets, of course, about doing it. It was a great honor, a great thrill, and I am so <laughs> amazed and, and pleased that the film has continued to be so popular. Well, it's just it's a, it's got such a great uh, following and, and such a social consciousness to it, as well as uh, being entertaining and fantastic performances. You were awesome in that film. Well, you're very kind. Uh, Catherine, you were, and I, I was wondering, because so many things were happening um, there, you know, behind the scenes, I was wondering if you'd be willing to share us anything um, behind the scenes that was happening there uh, between Catherine Hepburn, Spencer Tracy. Um, we know that that was his last screen role. We know that, uh, that Catherine Hepburn won uh, one of the two Oscars, and we know that the film is just uh, stands out for for all of us as uh, as a film that has some meaning to it as well as entertainment value so uh, so here we have someone who was actually there <laughs> so can you tell us any anything that that happened during the filming that that you thought would be interesting to share with our listeners well uh it was a very um stressful set because um, Spencer really was dying. And uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Sidney Poitier and I started the film up in San Francisco. It was the only location shooting that was done. And the first day we did the shots uh, coming in from Hawaii uh, at the airport and getting into the taxi cab and going to the art gallery. And when I got back to the hotel that evening, my aunt called me. She said the film has been canceled. And uh, she said, and the reason is that Columbia Pictures cannot get insurance for Spencer. Oh so um, I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll get some a plane reservation and come back tomorrow to L.A. And uh, then she called later on and said, we've made a deal, and um, the film is going to go forward, so don't don't come back to L.A. And... I said, well, what's the deal? And she said, well, Stanley Kramer and Spencer and I have agreed not to take any salary until the film is completed. 
Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. Some people uh, think it was only my aunt and Spencer that agreed to that, but it was Stanley as well. That's how much they wanted to do the film. And um, so we went on. But every day was precious, and Spencer could only shoot a couple of hours a day because um, of his health, sometimes not at all. And um, needless to say, my aunt was under an, an enormous amount of pressure. Oh, yeah. And this was the love of her life, no matter what some of her biographers say. Uh, this, the, I I was there. I know. I knew Spencer from the time I was a small child. He was part of our extended family. And um, she she really saw that the end was coming, and it was terrifying and so sad. So um, it, it wasn't a lot of fun, let's put it that way. Now, there were many, many other things that were going on uh, on the set, too. I think that, that Sidney Poitier, who had been um, a, recently attacked in the press uh, for being an Uncle Tom and this and that and the other thing, was really seriously considering not doing any more films. And this was after he had done um, the uh, the wonderful film about Mr. Tibbs, uh, James Helped Me Here, um, In the Heat of the Night. And, uh, and, and um, the film with Tony Curtis, The Defiant Ones, I think it was called, right in this country. Great and on film. and on and on. He'd done so many brilliant films. And... Um, but the the attacks that he was getting in in the press were very disheartening to him. Um, so I I got to see what you might say backstage him going through a very uh, life changing kind of examination of what he should do next and and he said primarily what he was thinking of doing was becoming a director. Now, he didn't quit acting altogether, obviously. I think he did To Sir With Love the following year and and various other things. But I think if you look at his film resume, he didn't act as much as he probably could have after that. So that was a a very dramatic thing that was going on backstage. And well, is that true? Oh, I'm sorry. I just yeah, before I forget this, I wanted to know if this is true because you mentioned um, biography, and I'm I just finished this uh, the Charlotte Chandler biography. I know where I'm going, which um, I, I, it's it's really a, quite an interesting read. But um, I think that she indicated that uh, Catherine Hepburn has never watched. Guess who's coming to dinner? Because of the of how hard that movie was for her to make, because of what uh, Spencer Tracy was going through, and that she actually cried, you know, back on the set. I mean, during that last speech that Spencer Tracy made. Is there any truth to to those things that were in that biography? Well, of course she cried. <laughs> I mean, yeah, she would have. Wouldn't you, if if it was your yes. great love that was dying, and you knew that they were making the last speech in a film that they would ever make? Absolutely. I mean, how can people even imagine that she wouldn't be tremendously touched? She would have had to be a rock not to be touched. Everybody cried. 
It was. And she deserved uh, the was, Oscar for that movie too. I mean, I thought. Well, was, I don't think that it was her Oscar role, frankly. But um, uh, I think that she and he deserved it together, and that's what she always said. She said, "This Oscar is for me and Spencer, and um, and our life, uh, our life's work, and that's what it was for." And very often, Oscars are consolation prizes or uh, honoring you for something other than the role you're playing. She should have gotten it for playing Joe and Little Women and any other... Yes, for sure. Yeah, any other number of parts that were really great acting roles. This wasn't a great role for her either. She also was playing an idea. But she was already such an established personality that she brought that to the role. And the role was written for her by uh, William Rose. But, of course... um, she the, she was genuinely moved, and but everybody was. The whole set was crying. I was sitting there watching them, and they everybody was crying. So um, I don't think that's such a startling revelation. Well, I didn't mean to interrupt uh, James. I know he has uh, <laughs> a few more questions, definitely that he would like to ask. So, so Jim's, uh, I apologize. Go. Oh ahead. No, no, it's fascinating to listen to Catherine because she's one of the better interviews I've ever been involved in. Because many Me stars, too. yeah, you know, many stars don't have a lot of interesting things to say, but uh, you certainly do, Catherine, and we appreciate that. You're very kind, Jim. James. Uh, uh, um, oh, going back, I think the movie you were referring to, uh, Sidney Poitier, was "Call Me Mr. Tibbs" about the school teacher in uh, England. Uh, that was the film you were referring to. Well, previously, it, he's, he's, "Call Me Mr. Tibbs," I believe, is a line from "In the Heat of the Night" that he did with Rod Steiger when a cheeky Southern uh, officer says, uh, "Hey, boy." Uh, do this, and he and he says to him, "Call me Mr. Tibbs." Right, and "Sir with Love," I think, was the film he did with the kids in the in the rough school. And oh, he, I think you're. Oh my goodness, am I, I right? Wrong. Yeah, I think I'm wrong, and you're right. <laughs> As it should be. <laughs> oh no, believe me, I, my film history is very spotty. Uh, well, I guess mine is spottier. <laughs> just uh, happened to know that one. Just happened to luck out on that one. That's, that's, that's right. Well, uh, I, was I, did a, I did have a, uh, a question. And uh, uh, despite all the tension on the set and everything for uh, all the other actors, what was your biggest challenge when you were filming Guesses Coming to Dinner? Because it was one of your earliest films and you weren't, well-versed in Hollywood and all that. Oh, I certainly wasn't. I, um, You know, uh, James, I was I was really too young to be terrified. I think if it, another five years had gone by, I probably would have been frozen with horror <laughs> at, at having to work with all those people. But um, ex- except for Sydney, whom I didn't know before the film, um, of the th- three major stars, I-, I knew the other two, and I knew them personally. So yeah. Yeah. it was like making a home movie in, yeah. in that sense. You know, yeah. I wasn't acting with um, with uh, Betty Davis and and uh, mm-hmm. and Cary Grant or something. I was acting yeah. with two people whom I knew as as Aunt Cat and Uncle Spence, yeah. and mm-hmm. uh, Sydney. 
um, who who was coming in. Well, he writes about it in his book, but there's some very funny uh, moments on the set because he was old enough and wise enough to know that this at that time was big theater history, and I didn't have any concepts of that at the time. And and he was very nice to me. He treated me like a, a kid sister, and he knew I'd been a philosophy major at, at Sarah Lawrence College, and he, he was very amused by that, and we talked a lot about philosophy and politics, and he just couldn't have been kinder. So I yeah. felt very at home with him. I didn't feel he didn't do some sort of star trip on me and make yeah. me feel awkward. I, I felt very confident with him, and with Isabel Sanford and and um, Cecil Calloway, they they were just all nice people. Yeah. So, and they were all very aware of what was happening uh, with Spencer and Kate, and uh, Spencer's uh, slipping away, and and I think that they knew that there was a lot of tension, therefore, in my personal life. So they bent over backward, and the makeup people, and the hair people, all those people were very, very kind. So for me, it it was a, a question of, of survival, but not in the usual way that a, a young person coming into a mm. Hollywood film. It was really just, okay, this is a really difficult situation because uh, Spencer is extremely ill and we don't know whether he's going to live from day to day, so I just have to really be on my toes and do my part as best I can because we're in a crisis situation here. And also, I was very aware, and Stanley talks a lot about this in, in his interviews, that Columbia Pictures thought this was going to be an awful film. Yeah. They had no oh, confidence in it. They thought it was going to do horrible business at the box office and that the story was uh, much too controversial for America, and, and on and on and on. So there was tension everywhere. Mm, yeah. Well, there were still, four, that's back in 1967, there were still something like 14 states where racial intermarriage was uh, banned. Oh, you're right. That, you're right. The following year, Martin Luther King was assassinated. The following year, uh, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. It, you know, for his attacks on organized crime. It, it was it was a very very politically uh, explosive period of our history. Yeah, it was it definitely. And this, uh, I understand that the Columbia Pictures. I, I guess they they didn't even want to open it in the in the South. No. And. Then I think it was just as successful. Eventually, it was just as successful in the South. And I, I've heard that at opening night, there were just crowds around the theater waiting to see the see the movie. That must have been given given um, <laughs> you and your aunt and Spencer and <laughs> the director and Sidney Poitier some satisfaction that there were so many people who were interested in in this film. Well, I I I don't know about Sydney because I don't remember ever saying what were you surprised at the success of the film. Um 
but certainly Kate and I were surprised uh, because of what we had been through uh, at Columbia with them feeling that this was going to be an extremely unpopular film. Well, it, I'm so glad that they were that they were wrong, and uh, it's going to continue to be be popular. And you know, Catherine, you were doing this this tribute next Tuesday too to your aunt and you're one uh, you're the only person that I know who knew her um as an actress you know working with with her in this in this film and as a and as a person so um I'm really eager to know what your most cherished memory is of of Captain Hepburn I don't know that I have a most cherished memory I knew her for a long time and have lots and lots of memories of her um, I don't know that there's one that that I I cherish in that way. She was a very complicated human being, um, not an easy person to be with. She was very powerful and strong, and um, gave the appearance of being tremendously self confident. But uh, in in her private life, she was actually terribly shy and arranged her life so that she was very protected. And oh. I think it was observations about her like that that were of particular interest to me, that somebody mm-hmm. whose persona was so powerful and, and confident and... Uh, fascinating to people that that people assumed that's really who she was all the time and and she wasn't and and that made for a very interesting uh, study of of a human being and and it intrigued me to see her the different faces uh, of her 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 persona being one thing like a mask and then who she really was underneath all that in the family I see. So uh, quite a quite different uh, in the the biography I was mentioning. Um, Chandler says that uh, that your aunt referred to uh, herself as an actress as the creature. Yes, yes. And, she wrote, she talked about that in many interviews. Um, she called that persona thing I'm talking about the creature. I, I suppose in thinking about it right now that that some of the Best things about my aunt um, that that I remember was her kindness to older people, and there were several people in her life, like a, a doctor named Dana Atkins, I believe that's right, who was a very famous doctor when she was a young woman up at the Columbia Presbyterian hospital and i even think one of the pavilions up there is actually dana actually that was his name the actually pavilion is named after him or for him in honor of him and when he was was very old and and um couldn't read anymore she we would all go out to new jersey where he lived and uh around lunchtime and bring lunch and then she would read to him the newspaper or something medical oh. journal that that he wanted to hear about and uh little acts of of or really great acts of kindness that a lot of people wouldn't bother with in her position however 
that was this that was her inner secret person uh mm-hmm. she felt more at home being with a man like Dana Ashley who reminded her of her dad and the the world that she grew up in um that made her feel as though she she were home and she feels comfortable doing that and then well, her 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 husband um Ogden Ludlow Smith uh they resumed a friendship um after Spencer died and he also was not in in terrific health and uh Kate would go up um Phyllis you know who Phyllis Wilborn was her mm-hmm. uh English uh, secretary companion yes. And Nora would make a great lunch. Nora uh, Moore, Considine, uh, would make a great lunch and would pack it in picnic baskets and drive it up to Connecticut where, where Luddy lived. And again, you know, she she would say, all right, now we're doing this. And she'd bustle around and she'd say, there are too many cats in this house and one thing or another. <laughs> but basically it was all very dear and, and she felt needed and of course he loved it i mean here was the love of his life who had left him divorced him in a rather um peremptory fashion and then coming back into his life in his old age and and giving him such pleasure and you know, such fun and and we always had a great time um these were, that's who she was in her personal life she was personally tremendously generous and I suppose that that's maybe what I cherish most about her. Well, that that is definitely something to cherish, and I agree with uh, James, Catherine. You are a terrific uh, person to interview. I but I can't believe that we that we're running out of time, and I wanted to make sure that you had a chance to talk about what you're up to now. What are, did well, I hear actually? Right I'm, that I'm doing something that that could be rather provocative. And interesting, and that is um, uh, we're opening in a play by Tennessee Williams uh, called The The Pretty Trap, which he wrote around 1940 before he wrote The Glass Menagerie. And um, it's either going to infuriate people or fascinate people because it's a completely different take on Amanda and Laura and Tom and Jim the four characters that ended up being in The yeah. Glass Menagerie. Uh, oh first of all, God. it's a comedy, which is right away very different from The Glass yeah. Menagerie. Yeah, for sure. That's a, definitely, I didn't laugh once any time I watched that. So. <laughs> and second of all, all of the characters are very different. Maybe Jim, the most like uh, the gentleman caller in, in what ended up being The Glass Menagerie, but the Amanda and the Laura... Um, I have no proof of this, but I suspect that the Amanda and the Laura in this play, The Pretty Trap, which will open uh, on 42nd Street at the Acorn Theater, I think around the 5th of August, um, I have a feeling that these these ladies might be closer to his mother and his sister than what ended up being in The Glass Menagerie. And I I have to say I've never had any interest in playing Amanda. I've played Laura twice, but um uh I always found Amanda rather disagreeable and and uh annoying. Mm. But this Amanda is an ab- well, 
James, you will be very interested because this is a southern woman who is a survivor, and she is not nostalgic about the past. She has a great sense of humor, great practicality, and her object in life at this point that the play opens is to get this daughter married because she sees that she's not interested in having any kind of career. And the gentleman caller comes, and all I'm going to tell you is it ends happily. Oh, oh, oh my gosh. Well, now, <laughs> you can see why I can I'm hardly saying. Wait. I can hardly wait to see it. That sounds, that sounds so great. Well, I just uh, am so impressed with, with all the things that you've done. I mean, I know besides Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, you've had... Uh, over 15 uh, other movies and TV roles, and then you've also become a playwright, a very successful playwright, and you you do lectures. I can see why. I mean, you are so articulate, and we just don't have time to cover all of this, but we'll have to have you back on the show when when we can spend the whole show just uh, talking about uh, your your philosophy and, oh, I, and your I, experiences. Interesting. <laughs> Thank you very much, uh, Betty Jo and, and Danielle and James. It's been a great pleasure for me to speak with you. Oh, it's been great. And we fun. have loved Thanks. every minute of it. Uh, thank you for being so candid and so informative. And we'll look forward to seeing The Pretty Trap and also to uh, having you back on, on the show. So uh, bye for now. Bye for now. Well, as you can probably tell, folks, James and I, we're just fascinated with the way Catherine helped us understand her aunt as a person and not just as an iconic movie star, which is the way we've <laughs> we've seen her. And we were especially moved by her comments on uh, on Kate's compassion for the elderly, uh, probably because we want people to be compassionate toward us. I think James is, is here live right now. So am I right about that, James? Yes, I'm still here. And he is oh, quite yay. elderly. <laughs> so uh, you were you were quite uh, taken with uh, with Catherine uh, Houghton, as you mentioned in your in your uh, time interviewing her. And um, so we'll be sure to have you on the back on the show when she when she does come back, so we can hear more of her experiences. But now, for the rest of the show, which has been extended to sixty minutes, we'll be. Um, talking about Hepburn's movies and performances, and to help us do that, I'd like to bring on classic film expert Diana Sanger. Welcome back to Movie Attic Headquarters, Diana. Thank you. That was very interesting hearing that interview. You're right. She was fascinating. She was. I mean, we just kind of got hypnotized, <laughs> and uh, when we were doing the uh, the editing, there didn't seem to be much that we wanted to take out, but uh, I'm so glad you could be with us, uh, Diana. It's always such a pleasure to, to have you here, and it's also a pleasure now, I hope, uh, if I can make the switchboard work for me, uh, to welcome our co-host, Jazz Shaw, back from his vacation. Let's see if we can get him on here. Uh, Jazz, are you there? I know you have some questions about Katherine Hepburn, so if you're on, um, you have the floor now. Well, in theory, I'm on. I don't know if you can hear me or not. I can hear you. I think you're. I think you're doing fine. Oh, okay. Yeah, Danny. I'm, I'm, uh, let me check with Danny to make sure. Danny, is Jazz being heard? Yes, he is on air. You're live. All right. 
thank you. And uh, you are on, Jazz. So what would you like to know about Captain Hepburn? Wow, I don't know. You, you covered so much of it during the first interview. I mean, that's just such a storied figure. But uh, I, I, I think we really ought to uh, turn it over to Diana and just start us off with, uh, you know, some of your favorite moments. Um, you know, where was she the best? I, I know what I would pick, and I bet you Betty Ann could pick my own favorite choice, but I'm not going to poison the well and uh, let, let you take it away. Well, we all have our own unique perspective, don't we? <laughs> we do, we do. <laughs> and I'm sure they're all valid, because that's what uh, people who watch the movies are like. They all have different opinions. Um, there are so many, and she was so iconic. Um you know, I really liked bringing up Baby because even though it was a flop, it really showed her star quality and her ability to be funny, and she hit those marks perfectly. And, um, you know, Hughes, Howard Hughes, who did the film, was was credited with it being one of the best screwball comedies ever. So, you know, they did something right in that film, even though it, it never went anywhere. Um, well, she was, was also great, great because that. of her pairing with with Cary Grant, and they would go on to make many wonderful other films, like The Philadelphia Story, which also had my favorite, Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> but there's so many moments. Um, one of my favorite scenes is in Adam's Rib when Spencer Tracy walks in the room on her, it's his wife, and <clears throat> supposedly catches her having cocktails with another man. He pulls out a gun. And he's going to shoot her or him, but she stands in front of the other man. And um, a few minutes go by of her hysterical fear, and then he turns the gun on himself and sticks it in his mouth, and she screams hysterically, and then he bites off the end of it because it's an edible gun. Yeah, so, <laughs> that's a great scene in that movie. And I'm so glad you mentioned uh, Spencer Tracy. Uh, she made, well, she made over, um, Hepburn made over 40 films, I think about 44 counting up the ones uh, that were mentioned in um, the biography I was talking about. And nine of them were with Spencer Tracy. That's about 20% of the films that she she made. Desk Set, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, um, Woman of the Year, which I just love, Keeper of the Flame, Without Love, Sea of Grass, State of the Union, Adam's Rib, the one that you mentioned, and Pat and Mike. And I'm so glad you picked a performance that she gave opposite Spencer Tracy uh, because those are all my uh, those are all my favorites. How about you, uh, James? Did we mention any of your favorites? Well, actually, you did. I was going to mention the Philadelphia Story, which was a madcap comedy, and that was with Cary Grant, whom I love, and uh, also Jimmy Stewart was in that, and um, Bringing Up Baby, which I thought was hysterically funny, and can't. Uh, figure out why at the time it was a flop at the box office. I, uh, I guess at that time she was considered box office poisoner during some of that time, and her pictures didn't do so well. So that's probably why. But the picture itself is wonderful, so there's no reason for it to have been a flop. And I think it has gained stature over the years since it's been playing on television ad nauseum, you know. If you can see it almost at any time of the day or night, so... It's one of the great comedies of all time. Well, it certainly has stood up. And, and Jazz was mentioning that I, I could probably pick his favorite. And um, I wonder, Jazz, if it's a movie with Humphrey Bogart, your favorite. Am I right about that? 
Well, obviously. I mean, if I had to go for one, I was going to pick African Queen. Uh, yes, you know, that it was just such a such a classic role, and and certainly not a comedic role. Although there were a lot of moments of comedy that were built in there with that sharp, witty tongue. But uh, and shot under great duress. And uh, if you ever watched the documentary of, of the making of the film uh, and what they went through when they were when they were shooting it, it I think it spoke a lot to her character in addition to uh, to, to just her acting career. But we, we should probably just drag uh, drag everybody else back into the uh, into the conversation again and ask Diana. Um, it, this almost seems like a, a borderline crazy question, but. There are so many people that we talk about back in that era who we might like them if we're movie addicts, but people don't remember them. What was it about Catherine Hepburn that made her? Well, why is she still huge today? Even young people, if you mention her name, they immediately recognize that. And, and those you know, are, are moments that even young people will have heard about and will talk about. You know, what, what brings somebody to that level? I think it's because more than her acting abilities, which are phenomenal, that so much of her personal life is also well known. It's you know been revealed in thousands of places, documentaries, everything, in the books. And and she gave 100% to her roles. She never compromised her own self. I mean, from the time she was a tomboy as a young girl to um, being a, a tough person to. Um, deal with in, in her movies and making her deals with Louis B. Mayer over Philadelphia story, which he did not want her to be in, but she actually bought the rights to the play story and then had to negotiate with him. She was smart and she was savvy, but um, no matter what she was, she was always herself. I mean, there's that great clip of her on the Dick Cavett show, which you can see online on YouTube, and and oh, they're good. filming before the show starts, and she's telling him how to move the furniture, and they're, she's making him move tables, and she's telling him the rug on the floor is disastrous and they're the wrong colors, and she's just hilarious because she is herself. And I think people can can um, relate to that in their own lives, you know. I mean, she never was pretentious. She never was a glamour queen. She was Catherine Hepburn. She she wasn't a glamour queen, but and James, she maybe you want to chime in on this. There, this is one of those things where, I don't know, maybe you have to be the the tasteless guy to mention this, but there was something else about her when you saw her on film. She was, at least in my opinion, she was one of that handful of just classic beauties, and this was back in an age before Botox and breast implants and, and all this plastic stuff you see. And she was just one of those women I always pictured when she woke up in the morning, she was just that stunningly beautiful. Well, well, they did wake up that way at MGM because everybody was beautiful when they woke up in the morning. But uh, <laughs> <can't> <laughs> I you think, might be right. Yep, that, that, yeah, no, man, story you know, not a hair out of place, and you know the makeup was perfect. But uh, what Catherine had was uh, tremendous cheekbones. She had structure, bones structure. Oh yeah, that was classic oh. and elegant. But I think the one thing that makes her stand out, and I think Diana will agree with this because she's one of these herself, and that's a very independent woman. She was yes. one of the first independent ladies back in the 1930s, and she was one of the few women, along with Marlene Dietrich, who had the guts to wear slacks mm-hmm. instead of dresses. 
she wore slacks, and she didn't give a damn. She just said, oh, well, they're more comfortable for me to wear, and she's going to wear them. So totally unacceptable in that day, it's in, in some totally circles, wasn't it? Yes, because, of course, they thought she was a lesbian, but she wasn't. But uh, So it's ridiculous. And uh, Marlene, who could be more glamorous than Marlene Dietrich, also wearing pants. So, so they look wonderful. They, they're both independent ladies, and Catherine Hepburn especially, came, that came through in her roles because she was very much her own woman. She said what she felt. Yeah, she she was uh, independent and but not so much with uh, Spencer Tracy. No, I think no, she uh, did acquiesce to him. She did. Yes, and always well, once they got started, I mean, she wanted him to have top billing and she would pretty much um uh you know, go along with <laughs> making sure that he that uh his uh, that he had the final word on everything. So that was kind of a that was kind of uh, different than she was with uh, with everything else in in her in her life, and well, it's um, a dichotomy for sure. Yes, exactly, exactly. But they were but they were dynamite together on screen. Okay. I mean, well, that chemistry between those two, I don't think it's ever been matched, unless it's uh, Hugh Jackman with any any co-star. But <laughs> I just always there, have there, to there, say, well, by the way, Betty Joe, I, I know you. You guys don't like to to drag politics into this too much, but just one quick thing: there is, we we I found one clip when we were prepping for this show, and I, I wish I could have uploaded the audio. There was one interview where she talked about, and this ties into into uh, what James was saying, that that whole independent streak and not caring for the conventions, that she was apparently friends with Nellie Taylor Ross. I don't know if you remember who that was. But Nellie was the first female governor in the United States of America. She was elected governor of Wyoming in 1924, and she was friends with Catherine Hepburn, and Catherine Hepburn had a great amount of, apparently, admiration for her for stepping up and breaking those those Mm. gender roles and and rising to be the governor of the state. Well, that's really interesting, and I think she also liked Amelia Earhart. I think she had she kind of idolized Amelia Earhart too. So she liked to look up to the the strong women, the women. Yeah, the woman who who broke those trends. Um, But wow, we've already used up half of the half hour. (laughs) Why don't we jump back over to Diana? And um, I I think you kind of gave us a hint already. So I'll be shocked if you have a different answer. But uh, she did work with a lot of leading men, and I don't expect you to go with Bogey. But uh, who do you think was her best? Leading male co-star, her best, uh, the the best person she was matched up with. Well, for comedy, it has to be Cary Grant. I mean, both of them created such believable characters, even when there was more or as equal prominent stars in the scenes with them. You know, the two of them still stood heads above the other actors, and their chemistry worked great. But for drama, I have to say Spencer Tracy. I mean, like Betty Jo said, their chemistry was red hot in all their films because it was real and it wasn't something that you just didn't feel they were acting. You felt those characters were really there and really going through those emotions, whether happy, sad, troubled, whatever. You were just brought in and it was like a soap opera. You know, you never wanted it to end. Wow. <laughs> That's good. That Well said. I, I like that. And I'm glad you picked Spencer Tracy too. Did she do, do um, better in drama or comedy, Diana, or 
Do you think she well, was I, equal? You know, she did more dramas than comedy, but I, I guess I would have to say comedy because, you know, everyone in Hollywood says that comedy is harder to do than drama. And she did excel at it. And, um, of course, she did the drama too. But just, you know, comedy takes so many different things. I mean, there's the pacing, there's the antics, there's the pratfalls, there's absurd situations, misunderstandings, and all of that needed a perfect sense of comic timing. And she had that. She never missed a beat. Yeah, but there's, there's a point to that, though, and, and maybe James can comment on this, that uh, people that are just comedy, you expect the Pratt Falls, you expect the people that were doing the Groucho marks and getting the pie in the face. I, I think she, uh, James, was more of someone who really mastered the art of the sort of occasionally deadpan, working it into an otherwise serious situation, dropping a line that would get people laughing when they weren't expecting to laugh. Well, that, that that's the beauty of it, because when you're trying to be funny, you're not. So she wasn't really trying to be funny. She was in situations that made her funny, like uh, Margaret Dumont in the Marx Brothers movie. She was a very elegant grand lady, and they were always making fun of her. Oh, yes. Making her do terrible. And Catherine Hepburn was sort of the same because she was a very patrician, well-brought-up lady, and you didn't expect her to be in these funny situations doing pratfalls and everything, and it made it that much funnier. I agree. I, th- I think that's a very, very good point, and I will never forget the last scene, I think it was in Woman of the Year, where she decided she was going to make breakfast for her husband. <laughs> Do you remember that scene, James? Oh, yes. <laughs> that is so hysterical. <laughs> not I a word. You notice there's not a word in that scene. Not a word. No. <laughs> it's all physical. <laughs> it's just it's one of the most physical. hilarious scenes I've ever seen. I hope our listeners, if they haven't seen Woman of the Year uh, with Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy, I hope that they check it out on on Netflix. And well, Jazz, I didn't mean to interrupt. I think you you probably have another question. Uh, well, I, I do, but I, but I have to confess ahead of time uh, for Diana that I, I'm coming totally out of the blue here. I was trying to to be a good doobie and do my research, but I did not actually watch. This is confession time. The Aviator. But I know that being the consummate movie critic that she is, uh, Diana did. Um, how did Kate Blanchett do uh, portraying Audrey Hepburn in The Aviator? You mean Catherine? Yeah, Catherine. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Wow. I think we've lost Diana. I think we, we might lost have lost her. her. I hope she. I hope she calls back in. But James, maybe you can answer that uh, question. I'm sure you've seen The Aviator. I did, and I thought Kate Blanchett uh, was right on the mark. She knocked it out of the ballpark, as they say. She captured uh, Catherine Hepburn perfectly. Uh, and, of course, I love Kate Blanchett. She's one of our greatest actresses of today. But to uh, take on the role of an icon like Catherine Hepburn must have been a, uh, a daunting task for that young lady. That was, well, that's that one that's certainly going on my she, Netflix list. I, I was unaware until Betty Jo pointed it out. I knew it was there. I just never made time, and I was like, you know what? i got to get that on my list and watch that. 
Well, she well, uh, Catherine. Uh, I mean, Kate Blanchett. She did win the now best supporting actress. Now I've got you doing act- it. <laughs> uh, yeah, she did. She won the best supporting actress for the Aviator, and she she didn't look a bit like Catherine Hepburn. I didn't think, but no, she, no. I thought she captured the spirit of Catherine Hepburn yeah, uh, yeah. very, very well. And isn't it fun to think that she was the first Oscar winner? to be honored for portraying a previous Oscar winner. <laughs> I like that. Oh. Yeah, and she had one of Catherine uh, Hepburn's silk gloves in her purse for good luck. Oh. She carried that around for good luck while she was making the aviator. So um, I, I really I, I really was happy with her performance in, in that. All, even though she she didn't uh, look like Hepburn, I you know, I bought in I bought into it. Well now maybe maybe this is Diana back. Hi, Diana. I guess not. I think we're having a little bit of a problem. Problem. We can keep trying. Yeah, we're having a little bit of a a problem with. uh, I I did have one more for James, though. By the way, since since we're waiting, Um, it it was an extensive career, and I was just curious because there are times when we have iconic actors and actresses who have their prime, and then. You know, later on, they do some things and people still respect them. I was just wondering what you thought. Catherine Hepburn kept working on and off all the way up through uh, the early 90s, as a matter of fact. She did a lot of TV movies. Um, she did The Man yeah. Upstairs, uh, uh, Grace Quigley, uh, Love Affair. There, there were a bunch of them. Um, in her later years, uh, did you catch much of her work? And was she still really just in there swinging or, you know... How did you relate to those performances as opposed to, you know, really the golden era when she was just setting the standard? Well, I did see most of her uh, later work. Uh, uh, of course, she, I don't want to say she was diminished, but, of course, she wasn't the feisty gal she was when she was a young woman, but she still was certainly good. Um one picture we've not mentioned and her leading man that she got along with very well was John Wayne and Rooster Cogburn. Oh, Cogburn. Rooster Cogburn. <laughs> yeah, anybody remember she did. that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that was did. A, We just had a remake of the uh, the movie that was the prequel to that. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. She, yeah. She, she, well, I'm glad you mentioned that, uh, James. And I, yeah. I can't believe that the time has gone by so fast, and we haven't had time to check with Danny to see if there, uh, there are any comments or questions or um, any kind of report she'd like to make from the chat. Danny, um, what's happening in the chat? Did we have uh, uh, quite a few listeners and people who were making comments? Yes, we have lots of listeners today, and it's funny that you just mentioned Rooster Cogburn. We've spent most of our time talking about that show, that movie. (laughs) Well, I'm glad that James brought brought it up, and I'm just so sorry that we – that you know, here we extended the time, but we could have we could have gone longer, and and it is time now to start wrapping things up. So I want to be sure to thank our chatters, Diana, Catherine, James, Jazz, and Danny for making this tribute to Catherine Hepburn a very special show. And thanks to our chatters and our other listeners for tuning in, and to the folks at Blog Talk Radio and at WRSP 936 for their support. If our producer, Nikki Starr, is listening, here's a special message. Get well soon. All your fans and friends at Movie Attic Headquarters miss you very much. 
I hope everyone enjoyed today's show. I sure did. Please come back next time when you're all invited to our big Harry Potter party. In the meantime, check out our film reviews at realtalkreviews.com. That's all for now, folks. And if Danny will help me with this, we'll have Brian Ferry take us out with a song that reminds us how wonderful those great classic movies can be. So, Danny, will you put on, as time goes by, as our outro music now?